Welcome to Cancer Conference update and commentary on oral presentations and posters from the 29th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I asked our three faculty members to assist me in identifying papers with the greatest potential impact on daily clinical oncologic practice. And if you listen to our recent program on cardiologic issues in breast cancer management, you know that just a couple of weeks before the meeting, BCIRG trial 006 had recorded enough events to trigger the second major data analysis, and Dr. Dennis Slayman presented these fascinating findings at the San Antonio meeting. Dr. John Mackey's had a central role in the BCIRG and began his review of key San Antonio papers by discussing the landmark 006 paper. The BCIRG 006 study was actually the buzz of the meeting in many ways. It seemed that the corridor conversations were all revolving around the updated results of this trial. Now, this was an adjuvant Herceptin trial. It was really one of the largest ones run. It was a 3,200 patient trial in which women with either high-risk node-negative disease or node-positive HER2-amplified breast cancer were enrolled. And at San Antonio last year, Dennis Slayman had presented the results of the first interim analysis, and that had been triggered by 300 events. What was exciting about the updated analysis was that with an additional year of follow-up, the important take-home messages from the trial were much more clear, and it became much more exciting as to what this trial would mean for women with breast cancer. Now, the design of the trial was an interesting one. Although the control arm of the study, the first arm of this three-arm study, was quite routine, it took adriamycin cyclophosphamide for four cycles, followed by four cycles of taxotere at 100 milligrams per meter squared, all intravenously every three weeks. So that was the control arm. The second arm was also not particularly novel. It simply took Herceptin and added it to the taxotere component of the study, and we call that second arm ACTH. It was actually the third arm that was particularly novel in which taxotere at 75 was combined with carboplatinum with an AUC of 6, and Herceptin was begun immediately at the initiation of chemotherapy. There were six cycles of chemotherapy given, and in the two Herceptin-containing arms, patients got one year of trastuzumab. Last year, it was clear that we had an efficacy signal. We had evidence that both the ACTH, that's the second arm, and the TCH arm were outperforming the control arm. And this was statistically significant disease-free survival. But the exciting bit of data from an additional year of follow-up was that now overall survival was improved in both arms that contained Herceptin. The second important point of this trial was that with this additional one year, there was additional 150 recurrences, there were now 185 deaths and a 36-month median follow-up, and it gave us a lot more confidence in the relative benefits of the two experimental arms. Whereas at the first analysis, it was unclear whether in fact TCH was as good as ACTH in terms of efficacy, that concern seems to have gone away with the additional time and a number of events, we're seeing that really there's very minimal difference numerically between the two Herceptin-containing arms when we look at disease-free survival or overall survival. At no point do the curves separate more than 1% in absolute terms. So the concerns that were present last year that perhaps this novel TCH arm might not be doing quite as well as ACTH seem to have gone away with further follow-up and further advance. And what's particularly exciting about that is that we're now able to look closely at the risk 
benefit ratio of these two Herceptin-containing arms. And so not only efficacy comes into play, but toxicity is now able to be balanced into that equation. And what's particularly exciting is that because TCH doesn't contain an anthracycline, we're seeing no long-term effects on cardiovascular function. So at the end of the day, we're seeing that there's five times as much congestive heart failure in patients on ACTH as with TCH. And when we see these kind of results, it means you can get the efficacy of Herceptin combined with chemotherapy, and you can do so without inducing clinical congestive heart failure in a significant number of patients. Additionally, when you use anthracyclines and cyclophosphamide, we know from long experience that these trigger leukemias. And in fact, a total of three leukemias were seen in patients on the ACT and ACTH arms, whereas no leukemias were seen with TCH. And what was the difference in cardiac events comparing TCH to AC taxotere without the trastuzumab? Well, the important cardiac event that came out of this trial was clinical congestive heart failure. So this would be grade 3 or grade 4 New York Heart Association clinical congestive heart failure. And 20 patients on the ACTH arm, that's essentially 2% of the patient population, got symptomatic congestive heart failure, whereas only four patients, which is 0.4%, got congestive heart failure. That's a five-fold increase in symptomatic congestive heart failure when the anthracycline is given. And what about the AC docetaxel without trastuzumab? The congestive heart failure rate on that arm was also four patients, or 0.4%. So you can see that the addition of trastuzumab onto the backbone of an anthracycline-containing regimen seems to be what really triggers the CHF. By emitting either an anthracycline or omitting Herceptin, you don't have that problem. You know, it's interesting. Last year, as you mentioned, even though you all in the BCRG were saying there was no statistically significant difference between the TCH and the ACTH arm, the curves visually looked like there was a difference. And I think most people sort of stayed away from TCH this past year, except in people with cardiac problems. But now, you know, I guess we've learned a little bit of a lesson about waiting for adequate number of events because that curve has drifted up. And now, as you mentioned, really kind of intertwines with the other arm. Exactly. And this reflects my practice as well. Even though it was not statistically significantly different, and even though our statistician on the trial warned us that there was no difference between the two experimental arms, I must admit, when you looked at the curves last year, there appeared to be a separation that potentially could have gotten worse with time. So I also tended to avoid TCH, except in those patients with cardiac risk factors. Now that we see the data today, it just goes to show that our statisticians are smarter than our clinicians on the team. And in fact, those numbers have essentially become indistinguishable in terms of efficacy signal. And again, that just provides reassurance that with further follow-up, further events, and much more confidence in the major endpoint of this study, which was disease-free survival, that TCH is by no means inferior to ACTH. Now, the other thing about this presentation that people were looking forward to is the data on TOPO2. Can you talk about what was seen last year and then what was seen this year? TOPO2, or topper isomerase 2 alpha, is a gene that is a protein that is targeted by anthracyclines and is considered one of the main mechanisms by which anthracyclines act. 
Now, we now know from a full evaluation of the vast majority of patients on the 006 trial, and also looking at the 005 population of HER2 negative patients, that the only group of patients who have amplification of the topo2 alpha gene are in fact HER2 positive. So what we're talking about here is that there is a subset of HER2 positive disease that has co-amplification of the topo isomerase 2 alpha gene. And that constitutes about a third of the population. And last year, we were seeing what appeared to be a visual effect. It was not statistically significant, but it appeared that there was more benefit to ACTH in those third of patients on the trial who had co-amplification of HER2 and topo2 and that TCH was not performing as well in that group. Now, another lesson learned, it wasn't statistically significant, but biologically we were hoping it made some sense to think that maybe there were two targets, and by hitting it with two targeted drugs, in this case doxorubicin and tristuzumab, we'd have better outcomes. But the lesson is that with an additional year of follow-up, many more events, in fact, that effect has entirely gone away. And what we're looking at now is the realization that Herceptin trumps everything. It appears that if you have co-amplification or not, the addition of Herceptin to standard chemotherapy is enough to bring up those disease-free survival curves, and we don't see that topo2-alpha is a predictive assay for benefit from anthracyclines on our trial. Now, there are going to be some people that say, well, this is a surprise because we have all of these other trials where topo2-alpha is now showing a definite correlation with benefit from anthracyclines. But each of the other reported trials that demonstrate this effect is an adjuvant study that was performed years ago and a retrospective analysis. And none of these trials, in fact, had Herceptin. So it appears that although anthracyclines are required for this population in the absence of Herceptin, Once you throw Herceptin into the equation, the benefit from anthracyclines is lost. Now, there were a lot of people kind of scratching their heads looking at these data. What do you think the clinical implications are, and is there a role for anthracyclines in HER2-positive disease if you're going to use trastuzumab? Well, it appears right now that if you have a patient in front of you who would have been eligible for the 006 trial, that the winning arm, when one looks at all of the benefits and all of the risks appears to be TCH. And so you could say that ACTH is still a very reasonable option, and I wouldn't argue with that. But the long-term issues of cardiotoxicity and the long-term issue of leukemia in the presence of identical efficacy would suggest that probably the better option as of December 13, 2006, might in fact be the TCH regimen. I know it's going to shift my own practice, and we're putting the TCH option through as a standard option in our local setting now that we have these data. Okay, let's talk a little bit about poster 301, which is sort of related, particularly as we move forward to the next generation of adjuvant trials for HER2-positive disease. This paper from UCLA looking at the combination of trastuzumab and bevacizumab. Well, this was a phase two study that Mark Pegram and Dennis Lehman launched through the UCLA network. And it was really a very first look at using monoclonal antibodies alone in the treatment of advanced breast cancer. In this case, they required HER2-amplified metastatic or locally advanced breast cancer for which no Herceptin had been given. So these are Herceptin-naive patients. And what they did was use a dose of bevacizumab of 10 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks, 
And they combined that with the standard dose and schedule of Herceptin, four milligrams the first week, then two milligrams weekly thereafter. And what was really exciting about this trial is that despite the fact it's ongoing and only a few more than 40 patients had been accrued, the efficacy signal is really quite striking. What they're reporting is that 45% of patients are getting an objective response with antibody therapy alone. Now, when I talked to Mark Pegram about the number of patients who are progressing on this study and trying to get an estimation for how many are having ongoing benefit from treatment, it looks that it's over 80% of patients who achieve clinical benefit with this combination, i.e. the disease has not progressed at that six-month time point. So at the end of the day, it looks like you can effectively give a combination of two monoclonal antibodies directed in one case against HER2 and one case against VEGF and get a major efficacy signal. Now, if we back up, it's not just a situation where we have two drugs and are combining them because we have something to do. There's actually a preclinical rationale for doing so. It turns out that when you transfect the HER2 oncogene into breast cancer cell lines, those cells start to produce VEGF. It's also known from a number of clinical studies that the HER2 positive population tends to have a higher level of VEGF present in the tumor supernatants and that the two are not entirely directly linked. So one is not a surrogate marker for the other. They both have independent prognostic significance. So it makes very good sense that if you can target both of these pathways that are relevant for HER2-positive breast cancer, you might achieve better clinical outcomes. And now the question, of course, the million-dollar question, is whether we can safely and effectively deliver this combination in the adjuvant setting where we would hope to raise the bar further over Herceptin alone. The one cautionary note from this trial, though, is that there was one patient who developed clinical congestive heart failure. Now, she'd had prior anthracyclines, and it's a little unclear whether this is a anthracycline plus Herceptin signal causing cardiotoxicity, but there may be a slight increase in cardiotoxicity when the two antibodies are combined. What about ejection fractions in this study? Well, to be eligible for the study, women had to have an ejection fraction over 50% by either MUGA scan or echocardiograms. Now, we see on the study that there were a number of patients who did have decreases in their ejection fraction, not symptomatic. Only the one patient, in fact, had clinically symptomatic congestive heart failure. But we were looking at decreases in LVEF greater than 10% in seven of the patients that they've studied thus far. That appears to be a little higher than we would expect with Herceptin monotherapy alone in this kind of population. So the early signal may be that it may be difficult to deliver this combination in a patient who's had prior anthracyclines. Now, in terms of the efficacy, I guess the thing that we would want to compare this to would be the use of trastuzumab alone, for example, as studied by Chuck Vogel. Do you think these numbers, even, of course, obviously an indirect comparison, are you know, significantly different from the older numbers? Well, actually, I do think that this early data that Mark Pegram is showing does suggest that you're getting something more than you had seen previously with the naked antibodies that Chuck Vogel had published in the JCO. In that study, they saw a 28% clinical response, and the median time to progression was actually quite short. It wasn't even much more than four months. So here we're seeing that the majority of patients are not progressing at the six-month time period for those that have been followed that long on this phase two study. And also we're seeing the response rate almost twice as high at present. So I think that although we are drawing cross-trial comparisons, there's a signal here that this is something more than Herceptin alone. 
Do you think there's any role for this combination in a non-protocol setting in metastatic disease? Well, at present, I would be quite cautious about this. Because of the one patient who developed congestive heart failure and, in fact, ended up in the intensive care unit and required very aggressive supportive care, the authors of the study have introduced an additional cardiac follow-up study that requires very intense monitoring of LVEF. This is not standard of care at present, nor is the evaluation that is done on the trial a standard look every three months as when a patient is on trastuzumab. So I would caution people against using this regimen at present because it is still only reported in an incomplete phase two study, although the results at this point are very promising. Now, when you look at these two papers, the 006 paper and this double antibody paper, obviously they're both relevant to the issue of the next generation of clinical trials. And I know the BCRG and the NSABP have been talking for a long time about looking at bevacizumab in addition to chemotrastuzumab. What are your thoughts about sort of what the next logical step might be? Well, in fact, these two papers provide a very, very powerful argument to proceed into the adjuvant study using TCH as the backbone. And I'm happy to report that at San Antonio, we had discussions with potential sponsors for such a trial, and the CIRG and the NSABP and sponsors have basically shaken hands now, and we are agreeing to proceed with a trial, the major component of which will be a direct and fully powered comparison of TCH versus TCH plus bevacizumab. So at the end of the day, the 006 replacement trial and the replacement trial for the B31 study will look at high-risk node-negative patients or node-positive patients with HER2-positive disease. And the question that we'll be asking next is, will the addition of bevacizumab to a backbone of taxotir, carboplatinum, and herceptin increase disease-free survival in a fashion that is safe as well in terms of cardiac issues? That's going to be really fascinating, and it's kind of interesting when you think about the implications to the clinician of the fact that the control arm there is TCH, and there is no anthracycline arm in there. Well, I think it's important to recognize that all things eventually change, and the anthracyclines have been a very important part of breast cancer therapy for well over 30 years now. And although, you know, they've had their day in the sun, the reality is that the newer treatments, like Herceptin, have problems when we combine them with anthracyclines. And given that we seem to have a safe and effective option, and the next trials will be potentially looking at the addition of another modestly cardiotoxic drug, we have to accept the fact that we will be looking at regimens that may not be built on the traditional backbones of breast cancer chemotherapy. I want to ask you about another paper, number 2031, a really interesting study looking at a key question, which is sort of the natural history of small HER2-positive tumors. Can you talk about that? Well, this poster was a very exciting one because it addresses a burning question that is in the front of the mind of many breast cancer oncologists, and that is, do women with small node-negative breast cancers that are HER2-amplified warrant aggressive chemotherapy in combination with Herceptin. This is something that had only been touched upon in the prior trials. For example, although 006 allowed node-negative patients, we only had 2% of our population that had tumors less than 1 centimeter in size. 
So although they're represented on the trial, we can't really pull them out of the trial to tell you whether there's a direct efficacy signal in that very, very small subgroup of patients. Similarly, the HERA trial included no negative patients, but in fact, they tended to have tumors larger than one centimeter. They weren't smaller. So when a patient comes in with a small HER2-positive breast cancer, we have to look not at the clinical trials, but really at the natural history to know whether such women warrant chemotherapy and trastuzumab. Now, the first data point that was really useful to address this question actually came from the Scandinavian countries, and Joe Hentsu et al. published in Clinical Cancer Research in 2003 that if a person with a node-negative tumor from 1 millimeter to 10 millimeters in size that was HER2-amplified, that there was a major difference in outcomes compared to a HER2-non-amplified tumor. Although numbers were small, the 10-year distant disease-free survival was basically 93% versus 65%. This was highly statistically significant. This effect was much larger than any effect you would see with estrogen receptor positive versus negative. So HER2 seemed to trump ER for even these small node-negative tumors. Now, what the British Columbia group did is review their absolutely beautiful database that they have, which includes women who have been treated with or without adjuvant systemic therapy over 10 years ago. It looked at a cohort of over 4,000 women treated between 1986 and 1996. And what they did was tissue microarray to confirm the hormone receptor status and the HER2 status of all of these patients. And because British Columbia is sort of a closed place, it's such a lovely place to live, no one ever leaves. And they have a very centralized cancer registry. They know what happened to all of these patients. And they're able to look very closely at uh, outcomes. And what they showed is that HER2 status is important even in the stage one patient group where it was an independent prognostic factor. And although it's not in the abstract, in the poster they showed that the women with tumors that were less than one centimeter also could be pulled apart in terms of prognosis on the basis of HER2 status by FISH. So this tells us that even in the less than one centimeter cohort that HER2 positivity is an independent risk factor for recurrence. Now, how do you integrate that with the data that we have from the adjuvant Herceptin studies? I think what it's telling us is that even small tumors are driven by the HER2 biology and as such carry an independently worse prognosis than the HER2 negative population. And it's now in discussion with my colleagues where I practice, our plan to be discussing adjuvant Herceptin-based strategies in women with a 5 millimeter or larger breast cancer. It looks like in this group that biology, the HER2-driven nature of these tumors, trumps size alone. Can you sort of provide a ballpark figure in your own mind, taking all these data into account? You see a woman who has a sub-sonometer tumor, let's say between 5 and 10 millimeters, which it's HER2 positive. Let's take two scenarios, HER2 positive, ER positive, HER2 positive, ER negative, subsonometer. What would you tell the woman the baseline risk of recurrence would be and how much benefit there might be from adding trastuzumab? Well, first of all, if we look at the Scandinavian data set, hormone receptor status did not have any interaction with treatment outcomes. So these patients that were HER2 positive didn't seem to benefit from the addition of tamoxifen in that population. So that was the first signal. When they looked at people who did not receive any adjuvant systemic therapy at all, so treatment-naive patients, the ER positives and the ER negatives did equally well. What seemed to really distinguish the two was the HER2 status. So in the Scandinavian data set, the hormone receptor status is irrelevant. 
in the BC data set, there was an interaction with hormone receptor status. Basically, grade was independently significant, and estrogen receptor positive tumors did seem to do a little bit better than estrogen receptor negatives, even if they were HER2 positive. So it's a bit of a gray area. What I could tell you, though, is that even in the subcentimeter tumors, you're looking at 30% of patients having a recurrence at the 10-year time point if they're HER2 amplified. So given that, one could extrapolate that the adjuvant trastuzumab approaches are reducing recurrences by at least 50%, and compared to nothing at all, perhaps 75%. So I would suggest that these women could derive perhaps a 20% improvement in their disease-free survival at 10 years, even in that subset of tumors that are between 5 and 10 millimeters. Okay, let's go on to the next paper related to metastatic disease and HER2-positive disease 2065, which looks at capecitabine plus trastuzumab. There's been a lot of debate about the issue of capecitabine and trastuzumab based on some of the preclinical work. Can you talk about this paper? This is a study that is quite interesting because there was preclinical work that had been published by Mark Pegram that suggested that if one were to combine Herceptin plus Zolota in preclinical models, that this combination provided less than additive benefits. So in other words, this wouldn't be the combination you'd necessarily want to jump into studying as the most likely one to provide benefit in the clinic. Nonetheless, what this study is showing is that this ongoing phase 2 experience of 90 patients is reporting the combination of a standard dose Zolota plus standard dose and schedule Herceptin is giving a response of 53%. This is substantially more than what I would expect from Zolota monotherapy in first-line treatment of metastatic disease, where the studies that have been conducted to date would suggest perhaps a 30 or 35% response rate. And again, it's higher than that seen with trastuzumab monotherapy in first-line metastatic disease, where the response rate's in the high 20s. Therefore, it might be an active combination. I think, though, that it must be borne in mind that phase two studies often give somewhat higher estimates of efficacy than a randomized phase three study would show, just by their very nature. But nonetheless, it's reassuring that you're getting a strong efficacy signal with this combination of two drugs that you wouldn't have guessed necessarily would have provided this. And of course, capecitabine is the agent that was looked at in the key lapatinib study. Certainly, a lot of people are getting AC and taxanes in the adjuvant setting. So, you know, in general, capecitabine is an important option as first-line therapy. Is capecitabine-trastuzumab a combination that you utilize in your practice? Actually, it's not. I'd been quite persuaded by the preclinical data and the fact that we didn't have any substantial-sized phase twos of the combination. This is the first trial that's really ever suggested to me that it's a more-than-reasonable approach. My approach in the past had actually been to be using venorobine plus Herceptin, given the fact we'd had several phase twos showing rather striking efficacy, and the preclinical data also showed a synergistic interaction rather than the subadditive interaction seen with Zolota. The next paper I want to ask you about is a paper you presented that drew a lot of attention, the tandem study. You presented that on the first day. I think it was the third paper that was presented at the meeting. Can you talk about that? Well, the tandem study was an attempt to explore whether inhibiting two pathways that could be driving metastatic breast cancer is better than inhibiting one. And we looked at a patient population that had estrogen receptor positive disease as well as HER2 positive disease. 
So these were the hormone receptor and HER2 co-positive population. Now that constitutes only about 10% of the patient population. And we had to approach a lot of women for this trial and conduct this multinational study to get 200 women to agree to forego the survival benefit proven approach of Herceptin plus chemotherapy and just go it alone with hormones plus Herceptin. And the design was a clear one-to-one randomization of anastrozole, one milligram daily as the control arm, and anastrozole plus standard dose and schedule Herceptin as the experimental arm. In this study, we found that women who began treatment and received anastrozole had a time to progression of 2.4 months. Those women who had the combination of anastrozole plus Herceptin had a time to progression of 4.8 months. So essentially, the time to progression was doubled. And because progression-free survival was the primary endpoint of the study, that led to this being a positive study. We did see higher response rates going from 7% to 20%. We also saw that the clinical benefit improved in these patients as well, from 27% to 43%. At the end of the day, though, overall survival was not improved by this approach. There was a suggestion that women who had the combination did live longer. There was a five-month improvement in median survival, but that was not statistically significant. In a subgroup analysis that was not protocol-specified, we saw the women without liver mets seemed to have a statistically significant improvement in survival. So at the end of the day, this is a regimen that could be considered for women who wish to avoid or postpone chemotherapy And in about 15% of the women on the combination arm, they were well beyond two years without progression. And I would think that that population definitely did postpone chemotherapy a meaningful time. I guess one of the things that's been talked the most about this data is the very short progression-free survival in the control arm that received just the anastrozole. Do we have other data sets that give us numbers? We've had this sort of general feeling that HER2 positive, ER positive disease doesn't respond as well to hormones, but you know, this 2.8 month progression-free survival was kind of shocking in a sense. Do we have other trials that we can compare in terms of these kinds of numbers? Well, we actually do have two other studies in HER2 positive disease treated with aromatase inhibitors. Now, these were studies that had been reported by Professor Lipton, and for the women on these large metastatic randomized studies where serum showed that they had the shed extracellular domain, so they didn't have the tissue blocks to do immunohistochemistry, they just had blood showing that these were truly HER2-positive patients, those patients did really very poorly with aromatase inhibitors. And in fact, response rates were on the order of 7%, as we saw in this trial, The time to progression was very short, two to four months, depending on which paper you're looking at. And these patients did not do well at all on aromatase inhibitors. So the thinking that aromatase inhibitors are the answer for HER2-positive disease, you know, is clearly wrong. You need more effective treatment than a naked aromatase inhibitor. And interestingly, further support for the lack of hormone responsiveness of a HER2-positive population was provided by Mitch Dowsett on the last day of the conference, where in the ATEC study population where the blocks could be retrieved, there was no particular advantage to Arimidex versus Tamoxifen in patients with HER2-positive disease. You know, after you presented the data, you got a couple of kind of, I don't know how to put it, but pointed questions. I was watching the expression on your face, but a couple of oncologists stood up and questioned the clinical interpretation of these tandem data, i.e. to strongly consider using the combination of a AI plus trastuzumab as opposed to sort of sequentially using both. 
which has sort of become the approach as it relates to chemotherapy, a palliative approach, you know, and the questioners sort of were trying to draw that analogy and wondering why not just start out with an aromatase inhibitor, assuming the patient's not, you know, critically ill, and then add in the trastuzumab or trastuzumab with chemotherapy afterwards. Well, in fact, in this trial, we did strongly encourage women who received anastrozole monotherapy to cross over to Herceptin-based treatment. And that happened in 70% of the patients on that arm. And in fact, of that 70%, two-thirds of those patients, in fact, went on to receive anastrozole plus Herceptin as the crossover treatment. So we didn't feel ethically we could mandate that they had to stay with anastrozole and just add Herceptin. For example, some women may have had life-threatening progressive disease in visceral sites that would very strongly argue that they should receive chemotherapy at that point. But nonetheless, we're still seeing a very strong suggestion for a survival advantage with the combination up front. So at the end of the day, we couldn't ethically conduct a mandated crossover trial to anastrozole plus Herceptin, given that the survival advantages that were known at that time all came from chemotherapy. So the sequential approach has not been fully explored in this trial. We just pragmatically couldn't do it. But when you say the suggestion of a survival advantage, I mean, there wasn't a statistically significant survival advantage. No, median overall survival numerically was improved, but it was not statistically significant. So in your own practice, does that mean that, for example, you have a patient with HER2-positive, ER-positive disease, the patient's not particularly symptomatic, that you're not going to start out just with uh, endocrine therapy? Well, the problem with starting with endocrine therapy alone, even with effective aromatase inhibitors, is that half the patients are progressing before three months is gone. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to watch these patients very carefully and make sure that they're not having evidence of life-threatening or visceral progression. If, in fact, the woman does wish to avoid chemotherapy for the time being, I think the combination of an aromatase inhibitor plus Herceptin is actually a better option. We're more likely to achieve a response. You're much more likely to get clinical benefit, even though the median time to progression may only be 4.8 months on this study. There are a subset of women in the combination arm that went well beyond two years. Over 15% of women went two years without progression. And I think that's a much more justifiable approach than simply trying a naked aromatase inhibitor here. So this paper really is a good segue into several papers that I wanted your thoughts on related to endocrine therapy, starting out with one of the most important papers that was presented, Abstract 12, looking at the EFFECT trial, fulvestrin versus exemestane. Yes, this was a large, well-conducted trial in patients with metastatic disease who had had progression on a non-steroidal AI, either anastrozole or letrozole, compared Fazlodex to aromacin. And the Fazlodex dose that was used on this study is what is thought now to probably be optimal. It's one in which there's a loading of Fazlodex aggressively in that first month to achieve an adequate serum level that we would expect to lead to clinical benefit. In fact, the IM injections were double the usual dose for the starting dose of 500 milligrams and then 250 milligrams two weeks later at the end of the month and then monthly thereafter. Exemestine was given as a standard dose of 25 milligrams daily, and there were about 700 women on this trial. Now, I was not particularly surprised at the result, which showed that essentially Fazlodex and Exemestine were interchangeable here. There was no particular efficacy signal advantage to either one of the regimens, but it does confirm that you can salvage patients with hormone receptor positive disease after failure of a non-steroidal AI with either Exemestine or Fulvestrant. 
One of the questions that came up afterwards, I think from Dr. Sledge, was the issue of is this type of loading dose sort of now standard of care? What are your thoughts on that? Well, at present, the loading dose used in this trial and the standard loading dose haven't been compared head-to-head in clinical trials that have been reported. One such study has been completed. We've participated in that study, and we're waiting for outcomes there to really tell us whether or not this makes a clinical difference. However, when you look at the biological activity of the drug in preclinical models, it seems to me that to achieve the levels that you would expect to provide clinical benefit, you do have to take this aggressive loading approach. And I guess Dr. Gratishar, who presented these data, actually showed the sort of pharmacokinetics, and it looked like at about a month you were already up with the blood level you needed. Yes, and if you use the standard schedule of 250 milligrams monthly, it's between three and four months that are required before one achieves what would be thought to be a therapeutic level in the blood. And the problem with that is that if you have to wait three or four months to get the drug loaded, that's about the time you'd be doing your first efficacy assessment, and you might not be getting the optimal benefit from that drug.